So if you could open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, let's just get into it. 1 Samuel, we're continuing our series through this book, and we're actually doing 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, we're calling this first half of the series After God's Own Heart. Um, and real quick, uh, I didn't say this, but welcome to Zoe Community Church, too. My name is Jesse. I, I recognize some newcomers, or I don't recognize you, but I notice you. Uh, so I just want to introduce myself, uh, and then let's get into it. 1 Samuel 4, at Zoe, what we do, or what we try to do every week is just open up the word and explain it, dig into the Bible. Uh, we're going through this chapter, uh, this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, it's going to take us a little while, and today we're actually going to go through an entire chapter. Uh, so let me read chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and then we'll get into it. we got a lot of work to do, so let me, let me read. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Samuel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slave to the Hebrews. As they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among your people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid 
for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we're thankful. God, we're excited. We feel um, blessed, Lord, that you provided this place for us to meet. God, that you have provided for us richly in every way, God, through the life of this church. And yet, God, I pray that you would help us as we come before you today with this excitement and with this joy. I pray that you would help us to not think that you have to do anything for us to give you worship. That you have to show a specific kind of goodness to us for us to call you good. Because the truth is, God, you are good. Everything you do is good and right. And God, if you bring great blessing into our lives, God, we want to give you praise. But if you bring great suffering and difficulty into our lives too, we know, God, because you are good, that you still deserve praise. And this is a difficult thing for us, God. But as we come before your holy word, as we look at this text in particular, and we see how you allowed your people to lose badly, God, I pray that you would help us to understand what you have for us here. God, I think, I just speaking for me, and I'm sure speaking for at least some people here, When things don't go the way that we want, it causes us to doubt and to be discontent and to even turn, in a sense, away from you. But God, we know that this is not the right response. So God, I pray that you would use this word to change us, to change our minds, but more than that, to change our hearts. And I pray that this word from you, God, which was written, which was given to us for our instruction, would instruct us and change us. God, we need your help. We need your help to pay attention. We need your help that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. So God, we look to you. We humble ourselves before you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, because he is our righteousness. Amen. Amen. If you drive about five hours northwest from here, up into the panhandle of Texas, you will see right along I-40, the biggest cross in the United States. Has anyone seen it, actually? Ever driven by it? Okay, literally no one. Me neither. I saw it online. Um, it's actually the biggest cross in the Western Hemisphere. It's the second biggest in the world. It's 190 feet tall. Okay, 19 stories. It's about 12 feet wide. And it was built by a man named Steve Thomas. A few years back, he was driving along the interstate, along I-40, and he noticed that there were all these, uh, how shall I say it, sinful, seedy establishments along the interstate with bright lights, and they were huge buildings. And he thought, why can't we, meaning Christians, why can't God-fearers do better? Why can't we advertise for Jesus in a grand way like this, in a grander way? Right? Jesus is good. He's better. So we should have better advertising. So at first he thought he was going to get some billboards or something. Uh, but then in his words, God gave him a, a vision of a cross. 
And because he was an engineer and because he was a millionaire, he decided he was going to build the tallest cross that you can possibly build without having to go through FAA regulations. Uh, some of you pilots know what that's all about. He didn't want to deal with that. So 190 feet was basically the cutoff. Now, here's the interesting thing. Okay, there's something weird about this, right? If you think about it, you can ask yourself, this guy asked himself, how can we advertise for God in a grand way, in a grander way than the world advertises for the world's things? And then after he thought this, he answered his own question by saying, I know, I'm going to build a giant cross. A cross. Because think about what a cross is. Think about what you're displaying on a grand scale. The cross was an instrument of torture and death. It was a symbol of Roman oppression and dominance. It's what they did to the people that they wanted to make examples of. Utterly humiliated. It was on a cross where the enemies of Jesus, across the board, got their wish. It was to get Jesus to a cross that Satan himself personally went into the heart of Judas Iscariot that he might betray Jesus. It was to get Jesus to a cross that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who got along about as well as 2021 Republicans and Democrats, joined forces across the aisle that they might accuse Jesus of blasphemy and, uh, and insurrection. Now, okay, of course the cross means something different to us, right, to Christians. But let's ask the question, Christian, what does the cross mean? What does it actually mean? Because you could easily make a case that to build the biggest cross ever as an advertisement for the grandness of Christianity is actually the biggest oxymoron ever. Now you might be wondering, why are we talking about crosses? Okay, did Jesse forget to do a sermon this week from 1 Samuel? We just read the chapter, the word cross appears roughly zero times, and in the Hebrew it's not there either. And this is the Old Testament, centuries before Jesus. But in this text, we do see another symbol. We see the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence, of God's manifest glory. And we also see a people in possession of this Ark, and they look to it with faith. They look to it for victory, and yet to their shock, they lose, and they lose badly. They lose the battle with the Philistines twice. They lose uh, 4,000 and then 30,000 men. They lose their lives. And ultimately, they lose the ark itself, the symbol of God's presence with them. The chapter ends with the anguished cry of a newly widowed mother dying in childbirth. The glory has departed from Israel. And this is a chapter of defeat. It's a chapter of losing. You could argue there's nothing grand about anything that happens in here. And this is why this chapter is so important. This is why this chapter is so important, not just to the flow of 1 Samuel, which it is, but it's important for even more than that. This chapter is really a wake-up call. This chapter is a cold splash of water, a cold dose of reality. Sometimes the people of God, they lose. Sometimes the people of God 
lose because God wants them to. Some of you have been wrestling with this too, I know. Because you've been following God, you think, you've been trying to live a good life, a life of faithfulness, and yet your life is filled with a lot of losing, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty. Maybe you think, you know, I believe in God, so why does it feel like he's not even present with me? Where I believe in God and I've tried to change, but it seems like everything in my life is exactly the same as someone else who doesn't believe in God. This book is about having a heart after God's own. And this chapter takes us deeper into the heart of God than anything we've seen yet, I think. See, if you have these questions, I think that this chapter is actually at least the beginning of the answer. So let's get into it. We'll break it down as we do under three headings. The first one, the problem. The problem. What seems to be the obvious initial problem in this text? We read it. I mean, at first, it seems like verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. At first, it seems pretty clear that the problem is the Philistines. They're back. The army of the Philistines has lined up in battle against Israel. Now, you all know the Philistines, right? We've talked about the Philistines a little bit in this series. And even if you're not a Christian or or you haven't read the Bible that much, David versus Goliath is probably, if not the most famous story in the Old Testament, one of the most well-known stories. Okay, Goliath, the Philistine giant. The Philistines were Israel's enemies. But beyond that one story and beyond that one giant and beyond kind of a superficial understanding that the Philistines were kind of the bad guys in this part of the Bible— What do we actually know about the Philistines? I mean, do you know where they came from? Do you know how their strength stacked up against the Israelites? Do you know what kind of threat they actually posed? See, here's what we know from history. Sorry, I'm going to try to walk around without falling off the stage because the stage is kind of different. You know what I mean? Um, But here's what we know about the Philistines from history. Uh, You can go all the way back 3,000 years about, and there are Egyptian records of the Philistines first arriving in their area. So there's Israel up here, Egypt down here. They had to travel through the wilderness, right? The Israelites to get from Egypt, you know, to Israel. Right around that wilderness area, the Philistines, called the Sea People by the Egyptians, they landed as invaders. Okay, they weren't from the area. They weren't Canaanites. In fact, if you actually trace where they're from, they're from the Aegean Isles, kind of near Greece, where Crete is. So we just preached Titus. We're talking about the church being established in Crete. I mean, the Philistines were like the brothers or the cousins of the Cretans. Kind of funny how that works, God's providence. Now, today, if you hear the word Philistine used kind of in a modern way, uh, it's used as a pejorative, right? An insult, Okay, you use it to talk about someone who's uncultured, right? Someone who doesn't appreciate the opera, who drinks their tea, but with their pinky down, right? Like they're, they're just not sophisticated. But that's really ironic because the Philistines were actually some of the most sophisticated and advanced people of their day. See, when they showed up on the eastern, uh, sorry, the western coast, right? Yeah, the eastern side, but the western 
It kind of depends on which way you're looking. But anyway, when they showed up where the Israelites and the Egyptians were on the shore as invaders, they had weapons that pretty much no one else had. They had iron weapons. They had iron chariots. I mean, it's basically like they landed as invaders with tanks and the Israelites come out with muskets, right? They got their horses and their little rifles and these Philistines show up and they're super powerful. They're strong. They're advanced. They're dangerous. So it's no wonder that when you read about them, they actually dominated everyone they came in contact with pretty much, especially the Israelites. If not for God's supernatural intervention, you know, with like his super soldier, Samson and stuff like that, Israel would never have won a battle, I don't think, not naturally. So we come to this battle. We're not told what prompted this conflict, but we do know that at this time, the Philistines had already made inroads into Israel. They had already subjugated certain Israelite towns. In fact, Aphek, where they're at right now, is in Israel's territory. So whether or not they're trying to take more land or whether or not the Israelites are trying to like take back their land, we don't know. But this battle is going on. And what we do know is that Israel, on their own strength, they're destined to lose this war. So verse 2, they come to battle. And now that you know who the Philistines are, you understand why the text doesn't give us many details of the battle itself. Because just from a, uh, just from a human standpoint, this is an NFL team versus your local Pop Warner team. Okay, this isn't, there's no tension here. Okay, unless God comes through in a special way, Israel's done. And that's what happens. They fight and Israel gets routed like that. 4,000 men are killed. And if you think about it for a moment, Israel was and is a pretty small country. They don't have 300 million people. Okay, so 4,000 fighting men is a huge chunk of your army, even a huge chunk of your nation. It's a slaughter. So does Israel have a problem? Oh, yeah. It is called the Philistines who just showed up on the shore, the sea people. But verse 3, if you look at it, well, the Philistines are a problem. And I think you know where I'm getting with this. They are not the problem. They are a danger, but they're not the greatest danger. See, remember everything we've learned so far about Israel, about how they have no king, about how everyone does what is right in their own eyes, about how the leadership at the highest level is corrupt. Their greatest problem isn't what's right in their faces. Their greatest problem is what's in their hearts. It's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem, primarily. But then what does verse 3 say? And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Did you hear that? They didn't say, why did the Philistines win? They said, why has the Lord defeated us? It's a super interesting thing to say. Okay, even though the Israelites are in a bad place spiritually, to put it mildly, the elders of Israel, their first reaction is to look to God. It's a little surprising. I mean, if you thought that everyone was an atheist at this point or an agnostic or a pagan, they're looking to God. They don't say, oh, the Philistine gods must be too strong. They don't say, well, there is no God. It's just the weapons. They say, God has defeated us. They know their God is sovereign and in charge. So what's the problem? What's the issue here? It's not that they're asking the wrong questions. They're asking the right ones. The issue is how they answer this question. Read the rest of verse 3. They say, So let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Oh, we know. 
It's because we forgot God back at Shiloh. That's why, I mean, he is all powerful, but we should have brought the ark. God defeated us because we forgot the most important thing, his throne. You know, let's be, let's be real. Okay, for a certain segment of us, a certain generation, everything we know about the Ark of the Covenant really comes from Indiana Jones. Right? I don't, have you guys seen that movie? It's okay. I won't judge you um, because um, I've heard of the movie. I read the Wikipedia. Um, but for quite a few of us, that's the picture. Right? We watched this movie that came out like 30 years ago, and there was this box that housed like the magic power of God, and the Nazis wanted it because if they had that box, that ark, then they would be unstoppable. They could conquer the world. That's how they thought that it worked. Now, some of that isn't wrong, right? If you read the Old Testament, the ark is a box. Okay, it's a box that was about like four feet by two and a half by two and a half. It was covered in gold. And the ark was commissioned by God to be built and placed in the tabernacle. The thing about the ark is that on top of it were these cherubim, okay, these angelic creatures. And on top of them was supposedly the throne of God, right? You could see this in verse four, where they said, God who is seated above the cherubim of the ark. Okay, it was the symbol of God's presence. That's where God would meet Israel at the ark, And if you read the Old Testament, when Israel had their greatest victories, what was leading the charge? It was the ark. Remember, they came to Jericho. The walls were too high. Jericho was too strong. But God said, march around the walls seven times. Bring the ark in the front. And at the end, they just yell and the walls come down. Because with the ark with you, you're supposed to be unbeatable. In fact, I looked up the quote from... um, Indiana Jones, the side character, I forget his name is like Marcus or something. He says something like an army that carries the ark in front of it is invincible. So that's why like Hitler wants it or whatever. That's what they're thinking. Now, we'll talk about this more in the next point, but we already read the full chapter. You guys already know what happens. It's not a spoiler. They bring the ark out. Everyone's all pumped. They're yelling like it's Jericho. And then they lose like right away again. It takes about a second for them to find out the hard way that Raiders of the Lost Ark might not be the best place to learn theology. Now, again, okay, um, no hate if you watch the movie, okay? Just to put it out there. If we want God to do this for us is the thinking. If we want God to be on our side, if we want to make sure that we have the power of God at our disposal, then we need to make sure that we do this. And this, in this instance, is bring his box. We need to have that box. And this is the real problem. It's not the strength of the Philistines. Okay, if you've been reading the Bible thus far, you know that the Philistines, as strong and powerful as they are in a worldly sense, I mean, send half of one plague that God sent against the Egyptians, and they're done. Send one Samson, and you can kill thousands of them, even though they're way stronger. God can defeat them anytime that he wants. It's not hard. The problem isn't that God is too weak. The problem is what Dale Ralph Davis call David Dale Ralph Davis, excuse me, calls rabbit foot theology. It's superstition. It's thinking that God is a good luck charm and that if you just do the right things, almost like, you know, if you just have the right words to a spell, then God has to answer with supernatural power. Their belief was more superstition 
than faith at heart. Now, here's the interesting thing, okay? Superstition is not atheism. Do you understand that? Superstition is actually kind of like belief on steroids. Superstition is thinking that, okay, if I just do this one thing, then this power will happen. This power will help me. You know, you think about athletes. They say, I can't play coach unless I wear these dirty socks that I wear every week. But if I wear them, we're for sure going to win. And if I don't, we're for sure going to lose. There's a lot of confidence in the power of this object. But the problem is the confidence is in the power of the object. God is not just an object. God is not just a power. God is a person. God is God. Now, here's the thing. All right, this is kind of intense. I feel like I've been more intense than usual. But the thing is, a lot of Christians have found themselves, and maybe you find yourself, in a similar predicament to the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And maybe you don't have Philistines coming to your doorstep. But you faced obvious in-your-face problems. You don't know how you're going to deal with it because it's too big for you. Right? It's the death of a loved one, or it's catastrophic debt, or maybe it's just a diagnosis that is just annoying, but it's just with you all the time. I mean, this is the boat that I know many of you guys have been in. You're still in. And we also face problems every day that might be smaller, but they take a lot of our energy, a lot of our, they give us a lot of stress. In other words, work stuff, marriage stuff, stuff with your boss, with your neighbor, with people at church, with your kids. And the thing is, most people that I met at church aren't atheists. Some people are. And if you are, we're glad you're here. We could talk after. But most people aren't, and you know that. Most people aren't agnostic. Most people aren't pagans. Most people believe that God is real, that God's in control, that God has a plan, that God is there, that you can talk to him. The problem that this text reveals isn't any of those things. The problem that this text reveals is that it's easy for us believers, people who have faith, it's easy for the people of God to approach God as if he was a rabbit foot, as if he was a lucky charm. And we have a problem We ask the right questions, maybe, where is God? What is God doing through this? Why is this happening to me? But then we jump to the wrong conclusions. I'm suffering right now, so we pray to God and we say, God, I don't deserve this, to be honest, right? I've done everything that you wanted me to do. I'm faithful, right? I've been trying to live for you. Why are you repaying me like this? You see what's going on here? Your good works in your own mind are kind of like the charm, right? God must give you something because you have done good works. It's a trade. Or maybe, you know, we realize that we haven't been living very well. Okay, we know that we can't appeal to our good works. So we say, God, this time I'm serious. We make a vow. We say, God, I know that I've been far. But today I'm turning a new leaf. I'm going to live for you. Just please help me. Get out of this situation. Will you fix this? Or maybe we try to trap God with scripture. We say, God, I thought you said you were a father, a good father. So why are you letting this happen to me? I don't even think you're good. Right, are you a liar? The problem with all of these various lines of thinking, the problem is that we only care about God when we feel like we need something from him. 
See, ultimately, these superstitious ways of approaching God put us above God. We're the ones who know what's best for our lives, and God just needs to come through like a sidekick. The problem is that the Israelites merely want to use God. And guess what happens? They pay the price. First uh, point number two. Point number two. So the problem is the superstitious religion. Point number two is the price that they pay. Because they pay a price, a pretty heavy price. Verse four. Let's just read the story. So the people went to Shiloh and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Okay, Hophni and Phinehas are still here. These guys, right, who have been there, been messing around for decades at this point, they're the ones accompanying the ark. They probably put on their robes. They're the ones lending their spiritual authority to this now spiritual holy war, this battle. The text is already signaling to us, the readers, that this is a disaster waiting to happen. Okay, these are not the guys that you want uh, beseeching God on your behalf. So they bring the ark to Ebenezer and they're like, okay, we lost last time, but this time, and they're like pumped up, they're shouting, they're yelling. It's so crazy that the ground resounds. It says all Israel was cheering. Of course, not everyone was in this one town, but it felt like it. All of Israel was unified. There's no way that we can lose. Who cares about your iron weapons? We got our own secret magical weapon. And the text tells us that the Philistines wherever they were, a few hundred feet away, whatever, they heard. Something changed. The morale changed on the other side. You just won a battle easily, but they're yelling as if they can't be beat. So they ask, what is going on over there? They find out it's the Ark of the Covenant, and they get scared. And this is amazing. Okay, they are actually scared of Israel's God. Now, their understanding is poor, to say the least. They think that Israel is a polytheistic nation. They say, oh, it's the Israelite gods. Okay, they don't know. They only have one God. They also don't really have the geography down, right? They're like, oh, this is the God that took down the Egyptians in the wilderness. Okay, Egypt is right here. Egypt is right here. Wilderness is here. But you can kind of forgive that error a little bit because the point is, the bigger picture is, they've heard a little bit about the power of God, and that's enough for them to get pretty freaked out. In a sense, they fear God more than the Israelites do. Now, do they just give up? Verse 9. They say, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So even though they're scared, they try to channel this into, okay, we got to fight for our lives. This is going to be the hardest battle yet. They say, man up, kill or be killed. So this battle, okay, and how it's set up in the text, it's already different. Okay, it's set up so that you're like, okay, I think this time it might be a little bit different. I mean, this is intense. This is real. But then you read the next verse and in one second, it's the exact same thing. In fact, it's worse. So the Philistines fought, verse 10, and Israel was defeated. I mean, it almost sounds like the implication is Israel didn't even fight. The Philistines fought and Israel just lost. Okay, they just showed up to lose. That's how confident I guess they were beforehand. And that's how bad it went in the moment. And that's why this is so devastating. I mean, even if you look at verse 10, it says that they fled away to their homes. 
Okay, this isn't like, okay, we're going to regroup. We're going to try to get back together for another push. This is like the army's done. Go back home. Try to protect your family. And in our scripture reading, which is also like really intense. Sorry, Jeff. Um, but Jeremiah is talking about how Shiloh got ruined. You can go there and see what God did in these days. I mean, the Philistines just pressed in. If you think about what happens in war, it's not pretty. I mean, people are getting killed. Houses are getting burned to the ground. The Philistines are just marching and having their way everywhere that they go. And they have the ark. So the question is, what happened? Why did this happen? How could God allow this to happen? We'll go back to verse 1 again. In verse 1, the actual beginning of this chapter says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Did you notice that? Now, by way of review, the last chapter was about Samuel's calling as a prophet of God. Do you guys remember that? Hopefully you guys saw it uh, online. Um, but the last chapter was all about how things are different now. Right? Israel is different now. There's a new leader that's being uh, raised up by God. It's Samuel. He's going to change everything. And Samuel, he, he speaks the word of God. I mean, Samuel is special in the sense that everything he says, right? The Bible says at the end of chapter 3, it says that none of his words fell to the ground. Do you know what that means? That he never spoke nonsense. He was never interjecting his own thoughts. Everything that he said was actually what God wanted him to say. And that's why in chapter 4, verse 1, it could say that the word of who? Right? The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Because Samuel was so faithful that when he spoke, people knew that it was the word of God. So you think that things are going to be different, right? Israel fundamentally is changed. But the thing is, if you read 1 Samuel, the first half of the book, Samuel disappears from the story after verse 1. He's not in it. Okay? It's about the ark of God. There's kind of a detour but I think that this absence is very conspicuous. See, think about it like this. Okay, you go out to battle against the Philistines. You lose pretty bad. 4,000 people are killed. And you know that God is the one that defeated us. And you know that now there's a prophet in Israel and he's never giving false prophecies. Everything he says is exactly what God wants him to say. Wouldn't you think I'm going to go to Samuel and ask him, why did this happen? What did God want to do through this? What does God want us to do? They never go to Samuel. Not once. They don't ask him for the word of God. He's a non-factor. See, the problem in Israel is twofold. Before it was that the word of God was rare but even now that the word of God isn't rare, the other problem is people aren't listening. See, communication is two ways. Right? God wasn't speaking, now he's speaking still. There's no one receiving the message. The Bible is clear, Galatians 6, God is not mocked. What a man reaps, he will sow. So what do you think? Actually, flip that. Okay, it's the other way around. Uh, sometimes I'm just in my head. Um, but you know what I meant. But what do you think in a purely physical sense, right? You have no chance against the Philistines. They're too strong. And in a spiritual sense, you're sending Hophni and Phinehas out with the ark. What do you think? I mean, even the people knew that these guys were corrupt. God said twice already that he's so displeased with them that he's going to remove the priesthood from Eli's family altogether. So why? 
would you think that God is on your side? Let's just get that right. Why would you assume that? I mean, why would you think that God must come through for you because you just brought the ark out? The Israelites pay the price for such arrogance, for such foolishness. Now, this is a hard thing, but I think it needs to be said. I've heard this a lot recently, and I think it's good. I mean, it's from the Bible, but I've heard people quote this verse a lot. If God is for us, then who can be against us? You hear people tell other people that, you know, like you're having a problem, but don't worry. If God is for you, then who can be against you? Yes and amen. That is absolutely true. If God is for you, then no one could be against you. But here's the question. How do you know? I mean, the key word there really, I think, is if. God isn't automatically for anyone, is he? If God is for you, what if God isn't for you? See, the elders of Israel were right. It was God, not the Philistines, who ultimately decided their faith or their fate, excuse me. And God willed it that the Israelites would lose not once, but twice. Sure, the ark was with them. God wasn't. Now, the takeaway, I think, is pretty clear. Don't presume upon God. Don't presume that you're right with God. Don't presume that he's going to come through for you in the way that you want. Don't presume anything. So God, bless you guys, right? Hope you're encouraged by that word. We'll be in the sanctuary. I mean, I was just thinking about this when I wrote it. I was like, man, this is going to be pretty heavy. I should just close in prayer right there. Yeah, here's today's sermon title. God isn't for you. You happy? You'd be like, can I get a refund on my offering? And I say, no. Okay, sorry. You already gave it, dude. Just kidding. Turn with me to Daniel 3. Let's cleanse our palate from what I just said with scripture. Daniel chapter 3. If you don't know where Daniel is, it's after the long books at the end of the Old Testament, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Daniel 3. There's a little bit more we got to talk about real quick. Here's the context of Daniel 3. We're just dropping into Daniel. You might know this story, but if you don't, here's the gist of it. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Babylonian empire, he made this huge statue. Okay, it's like, um, let me check how many cubits it was. 60 cubits. Okay, about 90 feet. A cubit was about a foot and a half, roughly. It's huge. He didn't want to deal with FAA regulations, though. He didn't want to make it that big. Just kidding. Um, but he made this huge statue. Why? Because he can Right? And he said, I'm going to get all my leaders together and we're going to play this music. We're going to get every single instrument, apparently, that we know of. And we're going to play this song and everyone needs to bow down and worship. So they get everyone together. They have the statue up there. They play the music and everyone bows down on cue except for three guys. At least three guys. We don't know exactly, but three guys don't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down to this golden idol. So pick up in verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, who had heard about this, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... He's going to give them another chance. If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, 
bagpipe, and every kind of music. I wonder what that sounded like, honestly. But every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He has all the power. It's just three guys. They have soul. They can just throw them in right there. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, don't waste your time. Tell the bagpipe people to not waste their breath. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know how the story ends. They don't do it. He throws them in, and God does save them. But that's not the point that I want to bring up right now. What I want to bring up is the first part of verse 18. What does it say? They're like, God can deliver us. Our God is almighty. You would have no power if God didn't give you that power. But they say, but if not, we're still not going to do it. God can deliver us easy. But if he doesn't, we're still going to worship only him. Now, do you see the difference between these three Israelites and all these other Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You could turn back there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the same God. But their approach is totally different. They put the ball in God's court. They don't say, well, we have the Ark of the Covenant, a pocket version around our neck on our cross, you know, a cross necklace, but it's an Ark necklace. They don't say that. They say, if God wants to help us, then he will. But they don't presume upon him. You could say, They aren't superstitious. See, to them, God is God and he can do whatever he wants. To them, God is God and he is worthy of worship whether or not he does what we want him to do or not. See, here's the truth. God owes us nothing. God doesn't owe us anything. You say, what about grace? Well, grace by definition is voluntary. Okay, God can give it if he wants But to argue that God must show us grace because he's gracious means that we don't understand what grace is. So let's humble ourselves before God, lest we be humbled. Do you see what this text is saying? You see what it's showing us? Let's humble ourselves before him. There was a guy named Heinrich Hein, uh, and I don't know if he was a believer or not, but on his deathbed, he said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Now, do you have any regrets in life? Anything that you want to confess, of course God will forgive me. That's what he does. He has to forgive me. God doesn't have to do anything. So for those of us maybe who have grown up in church our whole lives and we're like, of course I'm a Christian. I've been doing all this. I, I read the Bible. I go to church. I mean, I know that God is gracious and merciful. He has to save me. He doesn't. Okay, he doesn't have to. If you approach him that way, I fear for you. And when we ask him for stuff, you know, like, God, I need this. I need you to come through for me. And then when he doesn't come through for us and we get mad or when he does and we don't say thank you, it's not a good place to be. God is God. We don't deserve a spot in heaven. We don't deserve answered prayer. We aren't owed favor and blessing. We can't presume upon God's grace. So. One more thing before the third and final point. 
So this is heavy. But did you notice that it's not just that 30,000 Israelites died? Did you notice that? It's not just that Hophni and Phinehas get what's coming to them, as was prophesied. Also, in this whole exchange, the ark of God is captured. See, God could have let Israel lose without letting his ark be captured. But what we see here is God allows even himself, in a sense, to suffer shame. And this leads to the last heading, the last point, the proclamation. The proclamation, this, pes- this passage ends with the chilling proclamation that the glory has departed Ichabod. But what has this passage been about as we kind of wrap this up, as we tie it together? What is this passage? I mean, why did I even talk about the cross in the beginning? Because this passage is about a wrong approach to God and its consequences. I think you could, you could summarize it in that sense. When we approach God the wrong way, there are consequences that we will face. Now, the reason why I started talking about the cross is because of Martin Luther. And if you know Martin Luther, the man at the center of the Protestant Reformation, he's famous for a lot of things. He's famous for, you know, the Reformation, justification by faith, the 95 Theses, all that stuff. But one of the things, one of his big contributions to Christian theology was what he called a theology of the cross. Have you heard of this before? A theology of the cross. It's not very well known, um, but the more that I learn about it, and I'm not an expert, but the more that I learn about it, the more that I think that this is one of the most important things that he ever kind of codified for us in theology. He said, Martin Luther said, let me summarize, that there are two ways that people can approach God. Okay, he called them two different theologies. There's a theology of the cross, which is the right way, and we'll get to that in a second. And there's a theology of what he called glory, a theology of glory. Now, that can be a little confusing because God's glory is a good thing. But what he meant by that was worldly glory. Okay, he said that those who subscribe to a theology of glory, who think in this way, um, they see God, they approach God through a worldly lens. He said, naturally, we're all theologians of glory and how we think. When we think about God being great, for example, we think in worldly terms. So we take what we think we already know and we apply it to God. That's basically what he's saying. So when God says he's glorious, we think, okay, that means winning. That means riches. That means strength. We take worldly categories and we place God inside of those categories. So blessing, if God says, I'm going to bless you, that means health and wealth and prosperity. If he says that he is for you, that means that everything I touch will turn to gold. The person who has a theology of glory glory, believes bigger is better, ultimately trusts in his own thoughts and sees God through the lens of me. And this is how we all naturally are. But what God wants, Luther said, are theologians of the cross. And he said, what is the cross? Let's go all the way back to that in the sermon. The cross was an instrument of torture and death, a symbol of Roman oppression and dominance. It was on a cross where the enemies of Jesus had their way with Jesus, where Jesus, the son of God, was killed. He suffered. He bled. He died. The cross was where God seemingly lost to everyone who was watching. And yet the cross, Luther said, we know is actually where God won. 
See, God wins through losing. Through his death, Jesus defeated death. Through his suffering, he made peace. Through defeat, paradoxically, he achieved the greatest victory. And this is real glory. He said, if you want to know what God means when he says he's going to bless you, when you have victory, that you're going to have victory, that God's going to be for you, then look to the cross and know that God works in a way that's totally opposite of what we might naturally think in the world. God is different than us. And he can use badness, pain, torture, humiliation, judgment, defeat, death, and use those things for good. In fact, the cross shows us that not only does God sometimes use those things, that's what God wants to do. So verse 12, quickly now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Okay. So Eli, again, he's not the most evil person in the Bible, but he is insanely flawed. His heart is torn, but at least a little bit, his heart cares for the things of God. He's scared. And to a certain extent, even though he's blind, he sees a little clearer than everyone else in Israel because they think that they're going to win automatically with the box. He's not so sure. He thinks that they're going to lose. There's a good chance. Now, the ironic thing is, even though he's sitting and watching, even though he kind of sees a little bit, he's totally blind at this point. He's 98. All he he can hear is the cry of terror and panic and death as Shiloh received the news that the army is obliterated, the ark is gone. And the messenger goes to Eli, tells him that his sons are killed, that all these people died. And then he says, the ark was captured too. And with that, Eli falls back out of his chair. He's 98 years old. He's heavy. He falls on his neck. His neck snaps. He dies. And there's a super damning detail. And I don't mean that in a curse way, but in a literal way. He's heavy. Okay, this is not to like fat shame him or anything like that. The thing is, what was going on with his sons? They were taking all the best meat for themselves all this time. They were getting fat off the sacrifices of God. Eli is also fat. So he didn't, maybe he didn't take it himself, but he was eating. He was complicit. And then in verse 18, the narrator tells us something we didn't know until now. Eli not only was the high priest, he was also the judge of Israel for 40 years. Okay, he had all the power. He was the spiritual leader. He was the civic leader. He was the one that was supposed to lead them in every single way, and he didn't do it. Under his watch, the ark had been lost and delivered into the hands of the Philistines. And then there's this little aside about Ichabod, but this ties it all up together, and this is where we wrap up. Phineas's wife, who must have been a lot younger than him because Eli's like 98, he's an old guy, she's pregnant. She gives birth under the stress of what she's heard, you know, the death of her husband, father-in-law, and the loss of the ark. And death and childbirth was pretty common in those days, um, but she dies. And with her dying breath, she names her child Ichabod, which can be translated either no glory or where is the glory. Because as, as she says in verse 22, the glory is gone from Israel for the ark has been captured. See, Despite the sin of Israel, the depravity of the people during the days of the judges, despite that God's ark was still at Shiloh, the symbol of God's presence had remained. But at the end of this, it's clear that it's gone. 
Okay, the glory of God had departed. And if you do a word study, the Hebrew word there for departed is actually the word for exile. Okay, so the word, I mean, the glory of God had been exiled out of the promised land. He would rather be in captivity with the Philistines than be dishonored in the land of the Israelites any longer. But we already know the answer to the question that I'm going to ask next. Did God lose? I mean, they're all like, everything is lost. I mean, we just got destroyed. The ark is gone. But theologically speaking, did God lose? God can't lose. Do you see that? So what happened? Exactly what God wanted to happen. And that's where we end. See, there is judgment for sin. Hardening your heart to his word, refusing to heed it, dishonoring his name, treating him as you would a good luck charm, presuming upon his help, only praying to him when you need something, seeking to manipulate his blessing. All these things lead to the same consequence, which in a word is Ichabod, no glory. God will leave. God will take his presence away. I mean, how many churches or how many homes or even how many human hearts if you could look, you know, uh, if you had spiritual glasses, you know, to see the invisible writing would have Ichabod written over them. There's no glory in that place. There's no glory here. God isn't there with their lips. They worship, but their hearts are far. They are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of dead rottenness on the inside. There is judgment for sin. But the truth is we're all sinners. See, the thing is, they never deserved the ark. They never deserved God's presence. They didn't deserve the exodus or the victory of the conquest. It was always grace. And this is the key. Because at the end of chapter 4, it seems like all hope is lost, that everything is ruined. But actually, God, as he always is, is working through it. Everything is as bad as it can be. And yet, this is the plan of God And in the next chapter, we'll see that in the land of the Philistines, God will flex his power without any Israelite help. He's not in trouble. And through this defeat, tragic though it was, God cleansed Israel of their corrupt leadership. Did he not? He paves the way for Samuel and ultimately David. And even through this defeat, God is fulfilling his word. He said that I'm going to kill Hophni and Phinehas. That's what happens Right here, God is working through this defeat and soon enough, the sun will rise upon a battlefield where, as we mentioned, a young shepherd boy named David will defeat the Philistines' greatest weapon, Goliath. Not by might, but by God. See, this is how God works. This is the theology of the cross. How God wins is in and through losing. So when things aren't going good, the problem is never with God. So look at yourself. What is God doing through this in you? What was he doing in Israel? He was doing a lot, but what is he doing in you when things aren't going the way that you want, when you're losing, when everything is pressing in on you? What is God doing? Because God isn't losing. God is never losing. So Christian, if you're struggling, if you're struggling, I would urge you not to presume upon God. He's not obligated to solve your problems for you, but I would urge you to humble yourself before him. Ask him to reveal and convict and to transform. And God could take your suffering, your weaknesses, your struggles, 
He could use those things for victory because that's what a theology of the cross is. So we'll close with this. Steve Thomas, I was reading about him. He thought at first that he was going to build this huge cross. He was going to advertise God in like the most glorious way, the grandest way in his terms. You know, he, he thought even, he said something like, um, we're going to tempt people toward God, right? Like everything else is tempting people toward sin, but we're going to tempt them with our shiny cross. Um, but then he built it and it turns out that non-Christians don't really care. Right? Not a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, this is the best cross. I want to become a Christian now. Like almost no one who shows up at that cross is a non-Christian. But what he did say is that a lot of people do show up. And I don't know the theology of this guy, so he might not be very solid or anything. But what he did say was that the people who do come, for the most part, are all people who are going through stuff. They're suffering. They're sick. They have sin issues that they want to deal with. And he said, at first, he thought it was going to be kind of a theology of glory thing. Not, those are my words, not his, that we were going to change the world through having the biggest cross. But turns out the cross was the most, the best symbol that he could have chosen because everyone who went there was going through weakness. So he said, now this cross has really become a symbol. It's become a place for counsel and for prayer, for humility, for even humiliation, a place for weakness. So if you have breath in your lungs, if you have eyes to see, to close, I want to leave you with this word. If you are weak right now, know that this is where God works. So let's go to the cross. Let's humble ourselves before him. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to read a prayer, an old Puritan prayer to close. It's called the Valley of Vision. It's a very famous Puritan prayer. But I think it captures kind of the idea that I want to leave you with. It goes, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the, re the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is actually the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen.